Well, good morning again. Um, you know, so my wife and I just moved from Boston two months ago to West Asheville. We're loving our neighborhood. Um, my kids have never been outside so much. Uh, I have never been on Zoom so much in my life. Um, but we're loving being a part of this Grace Community Church so far. Thank you to many of you who are even watching this now uh, for really embracing us, for welcoming us um, into this family. You know what? We've been a part of a transition um, the last few months, but we're not the only ones in a transition right now. Transitions, big or small, um, are necessary for our growth, going from one place to another. If we don't transition, we actually stay stagnant. We don't mature. And like it or not, we're all in a transition right now. Whether or not you consider yourself a Christian today, that's actually not, um, that's actually not an issue right now. We're all, whatever we believe, we're all in a transition. The virus, this pandemic, has become a global transition that we're all experiencing simultaneously, regardless of what we believe. And what do I mean? You know, there was life, believe it or not, there was life before COVID-19. I know it's hard to remember. And there will come a day uh, when the stay-at-home orders are lifted. And life, as we know it, will be very different than before. There's actually no going back. And transition means just going to a new place. And we're all going to a new place, a new world, as it were. And in John 21, we enter a story of a disciple of Jesus who was in a, the middle of a transition. Peter was transitioning from one normal, one way of doing life, um, where Jesus was around a lot, where he was spending years with this person. And then he was in this disorienting place where he was thinking that he was dead into a new reality. A new reality where Jesus had risen from the dead. So, G so Peter is in this transition between the old way before Jesus came along, before he rose from the dead, and the new way of life with a resurrected Savior. And he's in the middle of that in John 21. We find him there in the middle of a transition. And he does deep work. Jesus does deep work in Peter's life that altered his very course and it really altered human history as we know it. And I've entitled this message Discipleship in Transition um, because, not only because I'm the new discipleship pastor and I love to talk about discipleship, but that's what we're really thinking about this morning. That's what we're all thinking about as Christians in this time. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in the midst of this transition that we're all in? And I want to ask you a question, though, because you might be tuning in today and saying, I wouldn't consider myself a follower of Jesus. I'm just kind of bored on a Sunday, and so I turn this on. First of all, we're happy that you're here. We're glad that you clicked on this link. Um, but I want to ask you a question, whatever you believe today. What does your way of looking at the world, what is it doing for you in this pandemic? I want to say from the outset that I believe that Jesus offers us hope. He offers us grace. He offers us potentially restoration um, that we're all looking for in the middle of this crisis. So I want to welcome you to listen in. I, I, want you to, I want you to know 
that Jesus offers us that thing, I think those three things, and we're going to talk about them in order here. He offers to, to come to us. He offers to speak with us, and he offers to commission us to a greater work in the middle of a transition. Consider these three points as you hear the central text read now. Our central text for today is found in John 21, 1-19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net uh, ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you did not, do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. The word of the Lord. First, Jesus comes to us. You may know that this story in John 21 is the final story in John's gospel, the, the, the biography of Jesus that John wrote, who was very close to Jesus as one of his disciples. 
And just before our passage, it seems as though John is ending his gospel. This is what John writes at the end of John chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John 21 is, is sort of like the end of a Marvel movie where at the very end of the movie, the credits roll and then there's this, this bonus scene that happens right after the credits. Dr. Selvig. So you're the man behind all this? In those movies, that bonus scene will always set up the next part of the story, the next part of the Marvel universe. And John seems to include this bonus story where Jesus restores Peter, the one whom had denied uh, him out of fear. And the reason why I love that John included it in his gospel is because it means that Jesus did not put a period on Peter's life, that Jesus would not allow uh, Peter's cowardice or his fear or even his sin to define him. No, Jesus seeks out his, his denier. He comes to him, He's not, but not to embarrass him or to shame him, but to restore him to a greater kingdom work. And the scene is set like this. Peter decided to go fishing. Um, in, in John chapter 20, uh, he was behind locked doors with the other disciples. They were afraid that um, you know, the officials, the, the, the Romans, would come and try to snuff out the rest of Jesus' followers. And so they were behind locked doors. You know, we can relate. And he's getting stir-crazy, it seems like. And so he decides to go fishing with some of the other disciples. And so they, they go fishing all night because back then they would fish all night. And then in the morning they would go to the marketplace to sell uh, their catch. Um, but they don't catch anything all night. But I want to just pick up on this. That Peter, what he was doing is he was falling back on what was familiar to him before Jesus had called him as a disciple. He resorted in a, in a transition, in a crisis, to what was familiar to him. In his disorientation, Peter goes fishing. You may know that in, in the beginning of Mark, Mark's gospel, Peter was a fisherman by trade when Jesus called him. Jesus called him to follow him, and he dropped his nets and followed him. Peter now is fishing. He's resorting back to what he once knew before Jesus came along. And I think we too uh, can long for the familiar in the midst of a transition, in the midst of a crisis. We just want things to go back to normal. But perhaps Jesus wants to take us someplace new. Perhaps he wants to do a deeper work in us to help us mature as his followers so that we could do greater work after this pandemic is over. I want to acknowledge uh, that some of you might be going through multiple transitions as we speak, not just related to the pandemic. You know, my wife and I, we just moved here for, after living in Boston for 11 years. 
and we're still getting to know people, and we're getting to know people online. It's, it's really disorienting. It's really strange. Um, but what about for you? What season of change are you in? What ways, though, and this is the question for all of us, me included, what ways are, are we trying to resist growth, perhaps? Jesus wouldn't let Peter stay stagnant. Jesus wouldn't let him fall back on what was familiar. He had, a, he had so much more in store for Peter. And I think he wants to do the same for us. So the disciples, again, they hadn't caught a thing, which seems to happen a lot in the Gospels, actually. Um, and so they were presumably tired and frustrated when Jesus from the shore um, calls out to them. They don't know it's him yet. And say, hey, you, cast your net on the right side of the boat. And what did they have to lose? Nothing. They hadn't caught anything. And so they listened, and they put their nets down, and they caught more fish than they could possibly haul in. Which also seems to happen frequently when Jesus shows up when they're fishing. Then the text says that John realized uh, that it was the Lord, and he told Peter as much. And so Peter jumps in the water, and he swims to Jesus as quickly as he could. I I like to imagine uh, Michael Phelps, you remember the Olympic swimmer, uh, fully decked out uh, in like a robe and a huge beard and just jumping in the pool and going as hard as he possibly could. You know, he's working hard, but it's not very efficient. He's trying to get to Jesus as fast as he could. But what compelled Peter to move toward Jesus? He had just denied him, but he moves towards him. When I hurt someone else, I hide. I pretend. I avoid. But Peter knew the heart of Jesus, and he couldn't get to him fast enough. Um, My wife, Anne, and I met in seminary near Boston, and we whispered in the library uh, for months before I worked up the courage uh, to ask her out on a date finally. And... uh, when we began to get more serious, we had that proverbial skeletons in the closet discussion. You know, we were starting to think a lot about marriage, perhaps, and so I needed to kind of come clean about my past and to be really honest with her, and it wasn't easy. And when she heard the sins and struggles of my past, uh, her first response um, was to demonstrate how heartbroken she was. She was crying. Her, you know, the tears welled up in her eyes because she was hurt. But then, miraculously, she turned toward me and she looked me square in the eyes and she said, I forgive you. And that was a a glimpse into her heart, her actions to move toward someone who hurt her to move toward someone at their lowest point demonstrated her, her heart, what she was like, that she was a person of grace and forgiveness. And you know what that made me do? It made me want to move closer to her. It made me want to get to know her more and to carry on and progress uh, in our relationship. And that was a vivid reminder of when, when, when Peter moves toward Jesus, it was because 
he knew Jesus' heart was always to come to a sinner, to come towards his denier with forgiving and restoring grace. And that's the first thing that Jesus does for us. He comes to us in the midst of a transition. And Peter, and, and Peter reminds us that we ought to move toward him in return. But before Peter was commissioned to a greater work, Jesus had to speak with him. And that's my second point. In a transition, Jesus desires to speak with us. And in verses 9 through 14, uh, Jesus, before he says a word, he cooks breakfast for his disciples. Before he interacts with Peter, the one who had denied him, he cooks some breakfast on the beach. I love breakfast. Eggs, bacon, uh, coffee uh, by the gallon for me. Um, any breakfast lovers out there, uh, I assume you're all raising your hands because breakfast is the best meal ever. Jesus sets a very fascinating stage for reconciliation with his disciple. With the aroma of fish and bread over a charcoal fire, he begins to speak with his denier. But it wasn't merely hospitality that Peter would have felt or sensed over that breakfast. Do you know that smell uh, is actually the sense most tied to memory? A smell can take you back. It can make you remember. And there's only two places in John's gospel uh, where uh, a charcoal fire appears. It's here in chapter 21, uh, and it's in chapter 18. And here's where we see this other charcoal fire. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Imagine what Peter would have been feeling at that charcoal fire. The smell of charcoal likely refreshed his memory as if he needed a refresher of his lowest moment. And then Jesus speaks to him. When they had finished breakfast, starting in verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Jesus asked the same question three times. Do you love me? Jesus asked him this question three times because that was the amount of times that Peter had denied even knowing Jesus. And Peter was grieved by the fresh reminder of his sin against his master. What Jesus is doing here, though, is reconciling with Peter. He's not rubbing his nose in it. This is what reconciliation looks like. Two disparate halves coming back together and being whole again. 
That's, re- that's what reconciliation is. We are witnessing the restoration of a relationship that was broken. So I want to ask you, who was the last person that you reconciled with? For me, uh, it was my dad. Uh, both of us are pastors. Both of us are very passionate about what we believe. Uh, and we had a disagreement. And we had a yelling match, in fact. And I'm, I'm not proud of that by any means. But here's what happened after, um, after that yelling match. Soon after the dust settled, he, he looked at me and he said, Andrew, I'm sorry. What I said was hurtful. What I said was wrong. And I need you to forgive me. And you know what that made me do? That made me want to do the same. And so I asked him, no, 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 I I was wrong. Please forgive me. And he did. We've never been closer, he and I, by God's grace. And when Jesus talks with Peter, when he speaks with Peter, that word forgive, do you forgive me or I forgive you, that's nowhere to be found. And you you might be asking why. Because Jesus had already forgiven him. Jesus had already forgiven him the day after that first charcoal fire when he was stripped and nailed to a cross. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says this, God in Christ was reconciling himself to the world, not counting their trespasses against them. So breakfast was merely a reminder that through his crucifixion, Jesus had already made the first move toward Peter. And so now Peter is asking, or Jesus is asking Peter, do you want to reconcile with me? I have proved that I will do anything to reconcile with you and to reconcile with sinners. Peter, I love you. I have died to prove it. And I've come back to be in relationship with you, to restore you, to restore the world for that matter. So Peter, do you love me? Do you trust me to make you more like me, a good shepherd of God's people? That you no longer have to resort back to what was comfortable or what feels safe. Jesus came and he spoke with him because he wanted to turn a hired hand who fled when danger came into a shepherd like him who would lay down his life for God's people. And that's my final point. Jesus commissions his disciple to a greater work. So after Jesus asked Peter about his love for him, Jesus commands Peter to do four things. He says in verse 15, feed my lambs, tend my sheep in 16, feed my sheep in 17, and then Jesus ends with follow me in verse 19. You know, this doesn't really come out in the English translation so much, but each of these verbs are 
imperatives, they're, but they're in the singular in the Greek, which all that means is that each of the commands are directed at Peter himself. They're not directed at us. They're for him. You know, most of you who are watching this right now are not called to be elders or shepherds of Christ's sheep, his church. That's just a job for a a few qualified men. Most of you are called to something else. But for those of you who are watching this um, that are called, let this be a reminder of the kinds of leaders uh, that we're all called to be as shepherds of the sheep, under shepherds. And speaking of qualifications, um, nominations for elder are actually going to be coming around, we hope, this summer. And so maybe this sermon and other texts throughout the, the, the scriptures would help you to prayerfully consider the men that you nominate for this task. And we heard in Ezekiel 34, read earlier in the service, about the failure of Israel's leaders to care for God's people. They were wrapped up in themselves. They were um, totally self-absorbed shepherds of Israel. And God, though, he promises, he judges them for being self-absorbed, and then he promises to come and rescue and tend to the sheep himself to restore them and to strengthen the weak with his justice. Jesus was this person, Jesus was the shepherd who came for his people to bring them back to himself, the strayed sheep, to strengthen the weak sheep. And Christ's church, after Jesus ascended, is supposed to be led by people like Peter, humble, messy, but people who run to Jesus for grace, who swim as fast as they can to him for grace. You know, after Jesus commissions Peter to feed his lambs and to be a shepherd, to be an elder, you know, he, he says pretty soon after that that his life is going to be hard. It's going to be anything but comfortable. Jesus told Peter at the end of our passage that he would, in fact, be martyred for the faith. That means that Jesus sends Peter out fully knowing, fully aware that it would involve suffering. And you know, in our modern society, in our late modern age, we tend to avoid suffering like the plague, no pun intended. We'll do anything to avoid pain. We pretend, at least up until about eight eight weeks ago, uh, that we could avoid death. But Jesus is saying, because I'm alive, Peter, you actually can't go back to the way the world was before I came on the scene. The old is passing away and behold, the new has come. We can call this a reorientation for Peter and really a reorientation for all of us. Whatever we believe, because Jesus is alive, the world is not ever going to be the same. A new way of moving through the world Jesus has brought about, and it's called the resurrection. It means that sorrow and pain don't have the last word. We may not believe that right now in the season that we're in, but Jesus comes into this season and says, no, 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 I'm alive. I have more for you. 
everything is different because I am alive and I'm going to send my spirit to dwell in you so that we can be people of the resurrection. There's a truer way to, to live. There's a more real way to live that Jesus invites us into in the midst of a crisis. And that's how we build his kingdom now. But what about as a community? just want to sit on this for a moment before we close. What about as a community? What greater work is he calling us into together? Well, how do we know if we're following Jesus as a community? How do we know if we're listening to his voice? And there's a number of ways that I could answer that question. I'm just going to stick with one. One way that we know that it's Jesus that we're following as a church is if we're listening to and following him and as we're hungry for grace and transformation, we go to him for grace and transformation and maturity instead of normalcy. That's one way we can know for sure we're following Jesus. Are we wanting to be changed and matured and look a little bit more like Jesus together? Or do we just want to go back to normal? Do we just want to go back to the way it was before coronavirus hit? That's one way we know for sure that if we say, no, 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 Jesus, you're changing this place. You're changing this city. You're changing this church. What are you up to? Teach us, Lord. Humble us. Andrew Sullivan wrote this in the New York Magazine recently. Of all the lessons that plagues teach us, surely the most valuable one is humility. Could it be that Jesus is using this plague to humble us together as a church and as individuals? Let's prayerfully imagine what kinds of people we could become now. What is Jesus up to now? What deeper work is he doing in you? And what deeper work is he doing in us so that we could do a greater work when we reopen in this area, in our cities, in our neighborhoods? What if we were closer than ever before when we reopen? What if we were more outreaching than we had ever been when we reopen? What if we were more other-oriented? I don't know. I'm not entirely sure what Jesus is up to right now, but I hope that you'll join us in seeking God together through our various gatherings on Zoom, prayer meetings, um, questioning Christianity on Wednesday nights. There's adult discipleship class on Sunday. There's so many different things that you can uh, beam into. The whole point of that is that we come together, that we'd seek God together, and that he would do that deeper work that he is intending to do in us so that we could do a greater work together in this area. And to close, I actually want to give us just a little bit of space to reckon uh, with that question. Jesus, what are you doing? What do you want to do in me personally? And what do you want to do in us corporately? And like Peter, we need to start by humbling ourselves before our gracious King and to run to him for grace. And so we're going to confess our sin now together and then we'll confess our sin on our own. And may that be both honest and hopeful, knowing that Jesus will not put a period on our life, on our transition, when we run to him for grace. So let's confess now together. And I want to just give you a, a little bit of space to just kind of collect yourself. Some of you parents, your kids might be going crazy. Maybe you need to push pause right now just to get your heart in that space 
uh, to confess your need for him and to let him come into the space that you're in, that we're all in, into your life right now and to change you, to restore you. But let's do that now. So we'll pause there and then from there I'll read the corporate confession and then we'll be done. Corporate confession and then receiving of grace. Now let's confess together. Our gracious Father, like Peter, we are fickle and fearful people who often deny Christ in our thoughts, words, and deeds. Your living word, accompanied by the work of your Holy Spirit, enables us to see ourselves honestly as sinners in need of a Savior. A Savior, praise God, we have in Christ. In honesty and hope, we confess now our sins to you, believing that you restore all who humbly come to you for grace. Now take a moment of silent confession. These words... Um, and the call to worship from earlier and the benediction in just a moment are all words from the mouth of a disciple that Jesus had come to and spoken with uh, and commissioned to a greater work. And so let's feast on the grace that Jesus serves to his people, to all of his disciples. I'll read the part of the minister. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He has committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen.